Well, welcome you all. What does GYC stand for? That's what it stands for, for you. For me, it stands for Grandpa Yoked to Christ. Now, you're a whole new generation, so you probably haven't heard the story of my transition into the Seventh-day Adventist Church from the Lutheran Church. You're a whole new generation. I don't have the kind of name recognition among your generation that some of these other young guys like David Ashrick has with you. Now, that's probably why this room is not full this morning, but I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here because uh, GYC represents a genuine revival movement. It has all of the earmarks of a genuine revival. And there are basically four earmarks of a genuine revival. Number one, study of the Bible. That's what we're going to do here. People that are usually involved in a genuine revival want to know what the Bible says. The second earmark is spending time in prayer, not only individually, but as a group. The third earmark is the singing of the old traditional Christian hymns that have emerged out of the experience of God's people through the centuries, that are filled with doctrinal truth as well as personal faith. And then the fourth earmark of a genuine, genuine revival is sharing the faith. And GYC does all of those, which is why I'm happy to be here and which is why I have been praying for years for GYC ever since it started. And frankly, I have been hoping for an invitation to come and share. Because uh, for the last 15 years I've been retired. I'm not only an ordained minister, but I was a professor at the seminary at Andrews University. And I miss the students. I don't miss all of the committee meetings, but I miss the students. So I don't know about you, but I'm going to enjoy uh, the hours that we share together. So as I said last evening, we're going to chew on First John like a dog chews on a bone because he's after the marrow that's inside. And if you have a dog, you know what they'll do. They'll drive you crazy chewing on that bone all day long because they know what's inside and that's what they're after. So we're going to take that kind of a look at 1 John. There's much more to be said about 1 John than we can cover in six hours, but I think we'll hit uh, the high spots anyway. The way you chew on a Bible text like a dog chews on a bone is by asking questions. You ask questions about what the Bible text is saying, about its meaning, 
and about how it should be applied in your life and in your experience. So you chew on it by asking questions. Now, a lot of the questions I've already asked, and so a lot of what I'm going to share with you is the answers to my questions. We want to find out what's on the mind of an old man, an old apostle, who is nearing the end of his ministry. The study of the Bible, by the way, is a lifetime course from which you never graduate. Never get a hold of the idea that you know it all. I used to be, years ago, as a young person, interested in art. In fact, I had ambitions of a career in commercial art. But the Lord got a hold of me and changed the direction of my life. But I always enjoyed visiting the Art Institute in Chicago. Have you, any of you ever been there? One of the premier art museums in this country. And every art museum has two exhibits. A visiting exhibit and a standing exhibit. The standing exhibit is art objects, sculpture, paintings that the, that the museum owns and are always on display. The other one is masters that, whose uh, work comes and goes, the visiting exhibits. But I used to go there, used to love to go there as a young person. I lived not far from Chicago in those years. And look at the great masters. And I noticed something. Every time I came there, I would look at the same works. But every time I came there, I saw something new that I hadn't noticed before. And then I began to realize that uh, it, that was due to a number of different things. If I went to the, to the gallery in the morning, it was the morning light that was shining on the painting. If I went there in the afternoon, it was the afternoon light. If I went there in the evening when the fluorescent lights were turned on and there was no natural light, it brought out something else in the painting that I hadn't noticed before. But most importantly, I was not the same person I was the last time I looked at that painting. So it was not just the light that shined on it, that helped me to see something new that I hadn't seen before. But the fact that I was not the same person. Something had happened to me in the meantime between my last visit and my current visit. Something internally that made it possible for me to notice things that I hadn't noticed before. And by the way, that's one of the advantages of growing older, as you will discover. You begin to notice things that you didn't have time to notice when you were busy growing up and maturing. That's why the study of the Bible is a lifetime course from which you never graduate. 
I'm still studying it, and I'm 80 years old. And I always see something new, something that I didn't see before. Well, I'm going to try to squeeze seven hours into six, because this whole study really covers seven hours. We'll see if we can do that. And forgive me if I repeat something. I do it for emphasis, and it's not just because I'm getting older. That's one of the phenomenon, phenomenon of old folks. They repeat themselves. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe they forget that they've said it, and then they need to say it again. But anyway, I repeat for emphasis important things. I used to be able to wing it, like David Ashrig does, when I was younger, but as I grow older, I've noticed that uh, uh, words don't come as readily to my mind as they used to, or phrases, so I'm gonna stick quite close to my notes. The words come if I have time, quiet, sitting at my computer and composing, no problem. But if I have to wing it, the words don't always come like they used to be. By the way, there's another uh, characteristic of old people is that when you get old you get funny. What I mean by that is you do funny things and I'm not going to explain what I mean by that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we're going to open your word this morning and we need your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. May what I say and what we hear be truth as you have revealed it. Impress it on our hearts and our minds so that we can understand it and live it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to 1 John. By the way, I am using the English Standard Version and have been for a number of years now because I like the, the way the translators express themselves. Well, were it not for the warnings that we find in the Word of God in the New Testament, it would be hard to believe that some of the churches that arose out of the Reformation are today uncertain, divided, even disputing concerning the nature of what Paul the apostle refers to as the gospel, which he calls the power of God to everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. In fact, they are uncertain, divided, and disputing to the point even of preaching and teaching a confused, misleading, and even a deceptive message. Paul referred to it as a different gospel. I am astonished, he says, and I'm quoting here from the Apostle Paul, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. I am astonished, he says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, he says, but there are some who trouble you 
and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's why you need to know what the Bible says. Now, the biblical gospel proclaims that the basic human problem is sin. For which the solution was the cross. It calls for the death of the old person, the old man, the old woman, the old self. Signified in baptism. And then walking in newness of life. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. The different gospel being preached today says that sin in human beings is not the problem. Instead, sin is found in things like social oppression or in unjust social institutions for which the solution is that a loving God accepts everyone unconditionally because of their created goodness. Inclusive social justice is the essence of this different gospel. Now it sounds good, but is it true? This different contemporary gospel teaches that number one, the Holy Spirit is doing new things today, even though such new things contradict the biblical testimony. And number two, the, the different gospel teaches that the power of sin is not present in human life, but in social institutions and in injustice. It also teaches that the gospel and the law of God are opposed to each other. And number four, it teaches that there, therefore the gospel abolishes God's law. And number five, it, this new gospel, different gospel teaches that baptism does not signify dying and rising with Christ to a new life but is a kind of a rite of initiation that guarantees eternal acceptance by God. Six, this different gospel teaches that Jesus is not the only way to find acceptance by God. In contrast to his own unequivocal words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And then number seven, and this becomes logically the logical conclusion to this kind of theology and this kind of preaching, the cross was unnecessary. Now, what is being identified today as simply a difference of interpretation, as uh, what is called a healthy theological pluralism, 
which is sometimes spoken of euphemistically as enlarging the tent, is, is in reality a part of the life and death struggle called the great controversy. The conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And the seriousness of this situation becomes apparent when it is seen against the background of two major contemporary challenges to biblical Christianity, which the church was created by God to preach and to defend. The first challenge is a cultural one, that of postmodern secular humanism, which denies absolute truth. And the second is a religious challenge. And I'm speaking particularly now of that, of that of Islam, which denies that Jesus is the Son of God, denies the incarnation, denies the divinity of Christ, accept him as a great prophet, but not as the Son of God, not as the divine Son of God. It is almost unbelievable at a time when the Christian witness to the biblical gospel is so desperately needed that so much of Protestantism is abandoning what we theologians call sola scriptura, the Bible alone, and consequently scuttling the Reformation. Uh, Halloween gets more attention on October 31 today than Reformation does. Back when I was in the Lutheran Church, we used to celebrate the Reformation every year on, around October, October 31. But I, I don't see any of that advertised in the newspapers anymore. Now, all of this would be unbelievable. It's happening right now. It would be unbelievable except for the New Testament warning, 1 John 2, 18. Now, he doesn't identify there the specific people to whom his letter is addressed, but he calls them his little children. In chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 18, Chapter 2, verse 28, 3-2, 3-10, 3-18, and 4-4. He calls them his little children. Uh, maybe that's typical of an old man. I don't know, but I, I know, uh, as far as I'm concerned, as I get older, I pay more attention to little children. I notice them more than I ever did in my life. And I want to relate to them, talk to them. And it's such a joy when a little child is not, a, not scared of me, you know, come up and talk to me. I remember, I got to tell you this story, a few year, a couple of years ago, I was invited to preach in one of the other Adventist churches in the UP. And after the service, they had a potluck meal. And so we, we were all going downstairs and a bunch of the kids went down ahead of us. You know, the kids always want to be first in line. And when I was coming down the stairs, there was a, a table right at the bottom of the stairs with about four or five young kids sitting, maybe eight, nine, six years, old, years of age. 
And one of the girls looked up at me and she said, you're scary. So anyway, I enjoy it when a kids come up to talk to me. But Paul, uh, John does identify the historical context as that of the last hour. What does he say in chapter 2, verse 18? Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And then verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, that is to say when he comes again, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So he identifies the historical context in which he is writing. as that of the last hour and the return of Jesus. Therefore, it has great relevance for us, especially for Seventh-day Adventists. just as it had for those who lived at the time when John wrote it. They lived at a time of political, social, moral, and religious turmoil. And isn't that true today? Very much so. And for those who breathe a sigh of relief, when the 20th century of warfare was finally over. That's the century in which I was born and have lived most of my life. And most historians and sociologists today refer to it as the century of warfare. World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and all of the rest that's coming in, you know, the Desert Storm and the Gulf War. Huh? So, but many peoples heaved a sigh of relief when the 20th century was over and looked forward to the new century, the new day that was promised by the 21st century. But sadly, those hopes have been dashed to bits by the first 10 years of the 21st century, the century in which you are going to have to live the majority of your life. And John reminds us that it is as true today as it was back then that many antichrists have come. Now, antichrist is uh, it's a compound name formed from anti, which means against or instead of, and Christos, antichristos, Christ, means against Christ or instead of Christ. And by the way, that's a word that is used only by John in this letter and in his second letter. Against opposing Christ is more in keeping with the characteristics of this spiritual force that John speaks of elsewhere in this letter and which we're going to talk about more 
as we go on. The Apostle Paul speaks of this same spiritual power that opposes Christ. He calls it the mystery of lawlessness. And the lawless one whose coming, Paul says, is by the activity of Satan. I'm quoting here from 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 to 10. He says, by the activity of Satan with all power and sides and wonders and with all wicked deception. Deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. John echoes the same idea of Paul. Now, in John's day, the, the, the opposition was manifest politically in the persecuting power of the Roman Empire. It was manifest religiously in the denial of the incarnation and holding that Jesus only appeared to have a human body. That idea was called docetism. In spite of what the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That religious opposition was also present in the idea that Jesus was only a natural born son of Joseph and Mary, and that Christ entered his body at his baptism and left his body before the crucifixion. And that idea is known as Serinthianism. That was all there in the thinking of early Christians. In spite of the fact that the Bible says, John 1, the Gospel of John, Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now the Word is referring to Jesus, of course. The context tells you that. He was in the beginning with God, it says. Now let me ask you, how could John be so prescient. Ever heard that word? P-R-E-S-C-I-E-N-T. How could John be so prescient? How could he have such foreknowledge and, and such for, uh, anticipation of events? How could he be so perspicacious? Have you ever heard that word? perspicacious, P-E-R-P-I-C-A-C-I-O-U-S, meaning acute discernment. How could he be so perspicacious? It is as though John somehow knew what the needs of God's people and his church would be 2,010 years later. Now, today. And it's awesome to become aware that when this little letter was laid, when this little letter is laid down like a grid 
over the beginning of the 21st century that it fits those needs so remarkably well. Later, when the same John wrote the book of Revelation, which Adventists love so much, with its symbolic language depicting the church in great distress and assuring it of the final victory in Jesus, he referred to four times to being in the Spirit. In Revelation 1.10, 4.2, 17.3, and 21.10. being in the spirit during which John heard and saw things that no one else could hear or see and reporting them he said in Revelation 1 2 that he bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ who as ascended high priest remember when the book of Revelation was written, where was Jesus? In the heavenly sanctuary as high priest. Ministers, he says, on our behalf, quote, in the holy places. So the message that John received from Jesus and wrote down in the book of Revelation came right from the Christ who was, who was high priest in, the, in heaven. He was already there. Now this was before 1844. But he was there. And that's where the Revelation epistle came from. But in 1 John, in this letter that we're studying, he establishes the basis of his authority, John does, and the authority of his message on what he heard and he saw as one of the apostles that followed Jesus while the Lord was still on earth. In other words, he's bearing personal witness and testimony to what he had seen. Revelation is what he saw, most of it having to do with the future. First John, he's talking about what he had seen and had heard. He was bearing witness to his personal day-to-day -day relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He said he heard it and saw it, 1 John 1, verse, first three verses, with our eyes, with his eyes, and touched with our hands, his hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. I saw it, he's saying and testify to it that which I have seen and heard I proclaim also to you now with those words John leaves no doubt as to the authenticity of his personal experience with Jesus uh, he actually saw and heard and touched the word Jesus. In other words, John knows what he's talking about. And we need to know what we're talking about. 
That's why you and I need more than doctrine. Doctrine is important, it's vital, but we need more than doctrine. We need a personal experience with Christ. Just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said to his disciples, and John was there, he heard it. He said, Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Now I want to encourage you when you read the Bible to pay attention to each individual word. Don't read it fast. Don't be in a rush. Take your time. Let each word impress it, itself on your mind. I'm going to read that again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And John heard it. He was there. Not just witnesses for him, but witnesses of him. In other words, if we're going to be authentic witnesses for Christ, we have to know what we are talking about. We have to know the one whom we are talking about. And when the Holy Spirit did, did come, it was in fulfillment of Jesus' own promise that John himself records in, in the 15th chapter of his gospel. He was there and he heard this too, verses 26 and 27, when Jesus said, when the helper comes, this was now pre-Pentecost. Jesus said, when the helper comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, he said. He didn't say that the Holy Spirit will bear witness about the Holy Spirit. But about him, about Christ. And you, will all, you also will bear witness about me. Because, listen to this, you have been with me from the beginning. In other words, you will bear witness about me because you know me, you've been with me. While John was there and he heard it, don't you think it made an impression on his thinking and his understanding of his own personal mission in life? When he heard Jesus say that? Why would it have made such an impression? Because the whole matter of being Christ's witnesses, of testifying about him, is modeled after Jesus' own testimony. And later in responding to questions posed by the Pharisee Nicodemus, Jesus said, John 3, 11, this is the Gospel of John 3.11. Jesus said, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. 
That's Jesus' own testimony. He's bearing witness to what he knows. He knows the Father and what he has seen. And it was John that reported that incident in his gospel and reported those words of Jesus. Now, quoting scripture is fine. And I hope you've got a good memorizer and you memorize scripture. And quoting scripture when you're talking to people is fine. But it has to be done by people who have an authentic experience with Jesus. Why? Because otherwise the testimony is not credible. It is incredible instead. And John underscores this in the last chapter of this little letter when he says in chapter 5 verses 10 and 11, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself or herself. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself or herself. That's the personal experience aspect of it. And then he goes on and he says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Now, it's hard to dispute or to argue with personal testimony. You, you can have a big disputation about doctrine, about theology with somebody. I have heard people get into real tough arguments over theology and over doctrine. But it's hard to argue and dispute with personal testimony. How can someone be critical of your own story? On what basis could they be critical? It's your testimony. This is, this is my story. This is, this is what God did in my life. How can you argue with that? Now, if we are honest and we are an authentic persons, we cannot deny what the Lord has done for us, what he has done in us, and what he has made us to be. You can't deny it. So your testimony becomes the, one of the most natural things in your life. John couldn't have said it better. He said, 1 John 1, 3, so that you too may have fellowship with us. That's the whole purpose of testimony, of sharing the message, of sharing what God has done. 
so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Any person who has the kind of personal fellowship with Jesus that John describes here will do everything possible to share that fellowship with other folks, with other people. Why? Because the fellowship of God's faithful people, the church, by the way, the Greek word for church is ekklesia, which means the called out ones. Called out of the world or worldliness. The fellowship of God's faithful people, the church, is the divinely established means of bringing together the Father, the Son, with those who do not yet know the Father and the Son. Bringing them together. Now Ellen White says in uh, Testimonies to Ministers and Gospel Workers, pages 49-50, she says, although there are evils existing in the church. What church was she talking about? Our church. So there are evils existing in the church. That's almost astounding to read. You know, when you read that, you do a double take. Mm -hmm. Although there are evils existing in the church and will be until the end of the world, the church in these last days is to be the light of the world that is polluted and demoralized by sin. Uh, the basic human problem. She doesn't hesitate to use the word sin because it's the basic human problem. That's our predicament. And she goes on. The church, enfeebled and defective, needing to be reproved, warned, and counseled, is the only object uh, on earth upon which Christ bestows his supreme regard. Then she continues, God has a church on earth who are, one, lifting up the downtrodden law, and two, presenting to the world the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Okay, the law that points out sin and the Lamb that takes sin away. Then she goes on, the church is the depository. And by the way, who is the church? Who is the church? You. You are the church. The church is not Elder Paulson and the General Conference. Or Andrews University and the Theological Seminary. You are the church. And she says that you are the depository of the wealth, of the riches, of the grace of Christ, and through you, the church, she uses the word church, through the church, eventually, the day will come, will be made manifest the final and full display of the love of God to the world that is to be lightened with its glory. 
Now, my, my advice to you when you read the spirit of prophecy is the same. Don't read it in a hurry. Let every single word impress itself on your mind. Read it over again. And read it out loud. You know, somebody will think you're nuts. You've lost your marbles. But read it out loud sometimes. Because when you do that, you hear things you don't hear when you read it silently. Now, it's bad enough when individual believers commit spiritual adultery. But it's far more serious when a whole church, charged by God with upholding his truth, upholding his will and his righteousness, supports and approves of such spiritual adultery. And that's going on too in Protestantism today. Sad to say. Now John wrote perhaps the most familiar words in the whole Bible. What are they? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Every Protestant Christian knows that verse. But in this letter, John's focus is not on the world. When he speaks of the world, he says the world, quote, I'm, I'm quoting from chapter 5, verse 19 of 1 John. When he talks about the world, he says he's talking about the world that, quote, lies in the power of the evil one. That is the world in which the church is called to bear its witness. And remember, when I use the word church, I'm talking about you. You are the church. That's the world that you and I are called to bear witness to Christ and his truth. The world that lies in the power of the evil one. No wonder the 21st century began the way it did. Huh? It's in the power of the evil one. In this letter, I started to say John's focus is not on that world, although he'll say something about it later, but on God's people, on the church, on you. That's where his focus is. And more precisely, the church of the last hour. You remember he said, chapter 2, verse 18, it is the last hour. And he also tells us that because it's the last hour, it is crucial for that church, you and I, to be able to distinguish between, as he says in chapter 4, verse 6, between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Okay? One of the purposes of GYC is to help you learn the Word of God so thoroughly 
that you are able to distinguish between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So you will know when you hear the false gospel, when you hear deception, and you say to yourself, no thanks, I'm going this way. Now why is that so important? And this is really the theme of these studies in First John. I was going to mention it last night and I forgot. You know, I was crazy, you know, I was supposed to share with everybody the basic content of this study. And uh, I, was, I had it in my mind, I was going to do it, but that's what happens when you get old, you forget stuff. But the reason, you know, that why this is, is, is so important is because it is that church, the church that lives and bears its witness in the last hour, it's that church which must understand and fulfill the mission that is required by the demands of the last hour. And those demands are different. And it is that church, you, me, our church, now, today, that has to be prepared to meet those demands. The, man, the demands of the last hour and the mission in the last hour. So this is no time, the time in which you're living, you know, and God appointed you to live in this time. You were not responsible for your birth. You didn't choose your parents, your race, your, na your, na your, your nationality, your... You know, all of that was in God's hands. God chose the time for you to live. He chose the 20, 20th, century, 20th century for me. He's chosen the 21st century for you. And it's the last hour. So you, as one of God's own, living, believing in the last hour, which has its own special demands of God's people, you have a special mission. And a heavy responsibility. Because people like me work slowly walking off the scene. We got to leave it to, in your hands. You know, I, we didn't always do such a good job of it. You know, but it's yours now. Well, we have 10 more minutes, so I can uh, continue on here a little bit. Like I said, I have to squeeze all of this into six hours. You young lady sitting in the back there, you let me know when my time is up. I, want, I probably won't observe it on my watch. Well, so, the church needs to be prepared, doesn't it? You need to be prepared to meet the demands of the last hour mission.
And so John devotes the rest of his letter following the first three verses that we've already looked at to that preparation. Remember that he's writing specifically to the church that's living and fulfilling its mission in the last hour now, today. That's what I mean when I said, how, when I asked, how could he be so perspicacious and prescient? And you notice he says it's the last hour, not the last year or month or week or day, but hour. Getting kind of close, wouldn't you say? Now, John, let me say a few things about John. He has been identified by many Bible students as the apostle of love. Have you ever heard that? And we certainly would agree when we know John's biography and we, we have read his gospel. Uh, and on the basis of John 3.16 and many other things that he says, yes, he's the gospel of love. On well, as well as on the fact that John's favorite reference to himself is the disciple whom Jesus loved. There's at least uh, four or five references in his gospel to the fact that he is the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, here, a little footnote here. In all of these passages that he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the word is, that is used is agapao, the Greek word agapao, which means divine love. Except in John 20, verse 2, he uses the word phileo, which is human friendship love. Now, let me ask you, was it egotistical for John to refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved? Jesus loved all of his disciples, didn't he? Yeah, of course. He loves the whole world, even those who don't love him, he loves. Incredible. But biblical evidence reveals that John had surrendered most completely to the influence of Jesus, of all of the apostles. And because of the depth of his own surrender, his character reflected Jesus more than the others. Catch that? Because of the depth of his surrender, his character reflected Jesus more than the others. We could compare him, for example, with rash Peter, impulsive Peter. John is not like that. He was the most receptive, the most teachable of all of the apostles. And how important that is, young friends. It can certainly be said that the grace of Jesus transformed this man 
so that he devoted the rest of his life to, to the service of Christ. It was John to whom Jesus spoke from the cross when he entrusted the care of his own mother, Mary, to John. Maybe he knew that John was going to live longer than all the rest of the apostles. My guess would be that Jesus did know that. That's why he chose John, as well as the kind of person John had become. John was trusted by Jesus to take care of his mother after he was gone. He was the first disciple, the first apostle to arrive at the tomb of Jesus. He was the first one to understand the mighty significance of the, the Lord's resurrection. And it was John who reclined at the table close to Jesus, John says himself in chapter 13 of his gospel, right next to Jesus at the Last Supper, and who, because of that closeness, at one point in the conversation, John tells as he relates this incident, he leaned, quote, back against Jesus. He must have been sitting right next to him. And at one, at one point in the Last Supper, he was moved to lean against the Lord. That's a, a rather touching little item in the whole story. In other words, as he said, he heard, he saw, he touched the Lord. And it's interesting to me that Jesus did not re re rebuke John for inappropriate behavior when he leaned against him. You know, some people may not see any significance in that, but I do. Jesus didn't draw away from him. Uh, I tend to be a kind of a hugging person. Uh, I even hug my church members. And I've, have you ever noticed uh, some people will reject a hug? You know, you, you put your arms around them, they, you can feel them stiffen up or even kind of draw back a little bit for whatever reason. Sometimes it's wise to do that, but Jesus did not draw away from him. Jesus did not push him away. But rather, Jesus accepted John's closeness and his innocent touch, innocent touch for what it was, the genuine and pure affection of a man, guys, for his Lord. Which tells me that you, you and I, guys, we can have an affectionate relationship with Jesus. It's okay. It's no wonder then, with all of this you know, background, it's no wonder then that John referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Huh? And I think our time is up, right? One minute. Well, let me just add then, by the time John wrote this letter, he was an old man who had seen it all 
the last survivor of the 12. And last night, that's why I said one of the most fascinating things about this letter is that it was written by an old man near the end of his ministry. Okay, I guess we have a 15-minute break, right? This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.